Welcome to Uncommons. I'm your host, Nate Erskine-Smith. I'm also the Liberal Member of Parliament for Beaches East York, but don't hold it against me. Now, it's been a couple of weeks, but we've got a number of new episodes coming, and you can always catch me rambling on my Facebook Live Q&A every Thursday at 8 p.m. if this isn't enough content for you for some reason. B-E-Y-Nate is the handle. For regular listeners, a shameless request at the start, but it would be very much appreciated if you can leave a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. We want to grow our listeners if we can as we continue this project. Now today, we turn our attention to protecting our lakes and oceans from plastic pollution. And I'm joined by Professor Chelsea Rockman. She's a marine and freshwater ecologist at U of T, where she co-founded the U of T Trash Team to promote waste literacy and optimal waste reduction strategies. I know her because she also joined me over two years ago now at a town hall event here in our East End alongside the Water Brothers. Plastic pollution is easily one of the most important issues for our East End community here in Toronto in terms of the correspondence that I receive, and our government has recently announced next steps for action through a discussion paper that focuses on banning some items from plastic bags to cutlery, looking to improve recycling rates, and more. It looks like there's reason for optimism, but I reached out to Chelsea to hear what an expert thinks of the government's plan. Chelsea, thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I first want to ask, because you are very passionate about the subject, you attended, obviously, I think it was two years ago now, one of the biggest events we had actually at the Fox Theater. You attended a panel discussion alongside the Water Brothers. It was one of our best attended events in many respects because this issue speaks to the Beaches East York community, the Beaches community, close to water. This really is one of the most popular issues in many respects in my community. The one we get emailed most about and the one that people are most vocal about to say, please protect our waters and protect our environment. How is it that you came to this issue and are so passionate about tackling plastic pollution? Yeah, it's a good question, actually. And I remember that that event was sort of sparked by a bunch of kids that wrote you a letter. And so I would say that when I was, yeah, when I was young, believe it or not, I was interested in waste. I cared about litter on the ground. I remember being asked my three wishes at the age of seven, I think. And my third was to get the litter off the ground. So I was passionate about it even then. But then the thing that really made me want to do this for my career was I studied abroad in Australia in 2006. And we were doing research on a research station that was on an island that was a very small community and a research station. And that was it. So they weren't producing a lot of plastic and there was debris plastic debris all over their beach. And I thought, well, how, how did this happen? You know, I, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. I was surrounded by not water. And all of a sudden here I am surrounded by ocean and seeing just tons of plastic pollution all over a remote beach. And so I got really curious about why that was. And I started looking it up and learning more about plastic in the ocean and learning more about the issue. And I was in a marine ecology course. I knew I wanted to work on the ocean. I knew I was interested in pollution. But that just brought like my two passions together. And I said, okay, I want to understand this more so that I can inform decisions to help solve it. The last time we spoke for a public facing kind of audience was a month after the ocean plastics charter that the government had helped convene through the G7. And some work has happened since then. Obviously, in November of 2018, there was sort of a Canada-wide zero zero waste strategy alongside provinces, at least at a high level. And now we're talking today, a month after the proposed integrated management approach to plastic products. And it's not exactly a political slogan that is going to have great success, but talk to me about why that document matters. 
from the Plastic Ocean Charter through till now, the Canadian government has been having lots of discussions with researchers and industry and the public to learn about their concerns and think about holistic ways to solve this issue. And so what this document is, is it's describing what they think their holistic way will be. And I think when you watched the news or listened to the news or even listened to Minister Wilkinson's announcement, even though he described everything in it, the public and the news the, people, the media I read at least tend to hear one thing, right, which was we're banning six plastic items by 2021 or as early as 2021. There's a lot more to it than that. And so there's, and I think we'll end up talking about this, but it's important to note that it doesn't just ban plastic items. It also changes recycling standards to ideally increase recycling. It changes who pays for waste management, which would be industry helping pay for waste management. So it's meant to work along the whole plastic cycle. So actually, I'm pretty excited about what's in the discussion paper, but I think what's also important for people to know is it's a proposal. So there right now is a period to provide your feedback and comments. And I think it's really important that we do that, um, particularly if you say where you live, which I just live across the Cotswold, where we live, we care about it too, right? We have to be the people who write those letters and make sure the government knows, you know, we're behind this, but we want you to also think about this, for example. And I want to get to the broader picture because... It clearly is a comprehensive suite of measures that are required to tackle the plastic pollution problem. But the reason the media covers the bans is partly because when you attended at the Fox Theater, that is principally what people were most concerned about is how do we stop these products from being in the marketplace in the first place? And when we look at the ban of the six items, and then there are other items that weren't banned. I got a lot of questions. Why aren't water bottles banned? What about cigarette butts? Can you explain why these six items were included and not other items? If, if you were responsible for piecing together the, the first step, which is the step of banning harmful single-use plastics, would you have landed on these six? Well, I can't say for sure I would have landed on these six, but I agree with the six if you're going to stop at six. I think part of the reason why the public thinks a lot about banning is because it's tangible. These are the products that we use. And the easiest way not to use them is if they're not available to us, right? But some of these other parts of the system also are important in how those products get on the market in the first place. So it's all really important. And I, I know we'll talk about what those are and why. So to your question, what the government did is they said, okay, how are we going to come up with this ban list? And they had three criteria. And one was that it had to be common in the environment. So it was something that we were seeing in the environment. We knew it was problematic in nature. Two, it was not recyclable. It didn't have a sustainable end of life. There was no way to fit it into a circular economy or a more sustainable plastic economy. And three, there was a, a, a replacement that we could do relatively soon. So I think some of those products that are missing is we need to think more about a sustainable replacement so we don't make a regrettable substitution or replace it with something that that could be worse or just as bad. Like water bottles. I think while with water bottles, there's two components to it. One is they have a very sustainable end of life. The most recycled thing out there, the most valuable thing in our blue bin today is PET water bottles. So it's the Coke bottles, Gatorade bottles, all of that. They tend to be the most recycled and, re and reused. So I think that's the other reason. But yes, yeah, so think about a, a solution that's that's tricky. We can switch to glass, but there is there is a reality to the fact that it's heavier and it uses more fossil fuels to ship it around. So I think it's what you said and also what I said. And you agree with the six. Would you add others in addition to the six? One thing that surprised me, and I think the reason it's not on there is because it's hard to know what to do about it, is coffee cups. And especially right now with COVID-19, you can't bring your cup to 
most places. Coffee cups, the lid is recyclable. So fine, but they should never be black, at least in Toronto, because we can't recycle them. The sleeve is recyclable, but that cup has plastic liner in it. And so I just thought, oh, like I wish that was, was banned, but I think it's tricky to know what to make it out of instead. Otherwise, I look at this list and I, I think it's pretty good. And there's not another thing that sticks out in my head as like, oh, if I had to replace one for another, I would I would do. But I know that this six is also not the be all end all, right? As we try to think more about the plastic economy, as we change some of these other things within the strategy and realize other problematic products, I think they'll pop up on a future list. And as alternatives become more readily available, we can move forward with other restrictions. One question in the discussion paper that is more open-ended is what should be included in the ban, not by way of product, but by way of plastics and whether compostable plastics or so-called compostable plastics ought to be included in the ban. And you have a view on that? Yeah. And, and more broadly, the way I would word that is like, how do we define the plastic product, right? Do we define plastic in a way that is inclusive of the industrially compostable plastic that we see on the market? Or do we leave it out? And uh, my opinion is, is to def- encompass it in plastic. Right now, there's not a There's not an easy solution for a biodegradable or compostable plastic. But the problem in the city of Toronto is that our our compost facility can't take it. It's not an industrial compost facility and it doesn't get to the heat that it needs. So if you don't have that facility, it actually goes in your landfill because it's not recyclable. The thing is the public sees that compostable material and thinks it's better. So I think I would include at the moment the compostable plastic that's on the market as plastic and ban that as well and try to switch to either a single-use material that can truly be composted or reusable system. And so much of the restricting certain item conversation ultimately comes back to what can be easily recycled or not. And the shocking number from the report was 9% of plastics in Canada get recycled, 86% end up in landfills. And so when we look at improving recycling efforts, there were a number of different suggestions in the course of the discussion paper, ultimately centered on performance standards. What does that look like? So there's a reason why some people say recycling is broken and it's not because recycling isn't possible and it's not because recycling isn't good when it's done well. It's because something being recyclable doesn't mean it's practically recyclable in your city, right? So a plastic bag is recyclable and in Toronto, we can put it in our recycle bin, but in many places you can't. And so in that case, it's going to be one of those 91% of plastics that don't get recycled. So in order to increase how much is actually recycled, you need to A, use products that are recyclable for sure. You have to have a recycling system to match it. And you have to have a waste literate community that knows what goes in their recycle bin and what doesn't and how to properly clean it to put it in your recycle bin so it can be managed. And there are issues right now at all three of those stages. So the performance standard that I think is implemented in this case is a, well, it was a recycle content standard saying that by 2030, I believe it was, 50% of plastics have to be made out of recycled content. So that means it's going to technology force, A, the right type of recycling equipment and technology to be able to recycle more, the companies to make and to sell, make and sell plastics that are recyclable, and then maybe more education for us, right, to know what to put in the bins. Because if these plastics have to be made out of recycled content, you have to be recycling in order to have the content on the market. So that 
50% recycled content is a way to push a better market for recyclable material so that you can actually increase recycling, if that makes sense. And there were some challenges that the discussion paper identified in relation to increasing recycled content in plastics. And I was trying to wrap my head around the inconsistent supply of quality feedstock. What are the challenges that are faced as we look to get to that 50% of plastics being recycled plastics by 2030? I think there's the two words, the inconsistent and quality. So inconsistent feedstock a, there's not enough recycled content on the market, and B, it is more expensive than virgin plastic material, and partly that's because we subsidize fossil fuels. So if you were to incentivize or subsidize recycled content, that would help as well, because if you're a company trying to make a dollar, you're also going to buy the cheaper material. But the quality part comes in where a lot of these plastics have chemical additives in them or dyes to make them a certain color. And some of these can be hazardous if it's used in a food grade plastic. So the quality is totally fine for me to take a bunch of plastic and make it into a sweatshirt or make it into a couch or a flip flops, but to make it into those plastic items that we use so often for food, it's not food grade. So part of that quality is to how do you make it's so that these plastics for food grade can also be 50% recycled content. And when they present the challenge of insufficient recovery options, so when we talk about recyclable plastics and then where we can't recycle plastics to have plastics that we can recover, explain that challenge to me of insufficient recovery options. Yeah, so right now, the way we generally recycle things is through mechanical recycling. And that literally means, best of my understanding, you wash it, which is why you need to clean your plastics first, like get the peanut butter off because it's just doing a, a spray to clean them off. And then they re they regrind, they grind them up and then they melt them down into pellets. And then they, the process begins of melting them into that product. So not all plastics work well in that system because sometimes there's two polymers in one, they have those chemical additives, for example, uh, the color is really tricky. If you if you're melting all these different colors together, it might get some ugly brown and you're trying to make a shampoo bottle that all has a beautiful green, for example. So these little things you've never thought about. So right now, the plastic industry is really excited about or the waste industry about something called chemical recycling. And I'm still trying to fully understand what it is. But my understanding is that it breaks the plastic down into their initial molecules and then you can just make the plastic out of the molecules that you want. So I think it's this great idea that is further along in the market than it used to be. But I think I'm still curious how close we are to doing it and to making sure that it truly is the end all be all that I think we're suggesting that it could be right now. So I have lots of questions, but that's a technology that could fix that issue. The 9% figure stands out. But the other figure that stood out was only 25% of plastics are collected and sent to a sorting facility. Where in the process does it fall down that 75% isn't being sent at all? So I'm going to start with the part that's not our fault, you and I, and then I'm going to go to the part that is our fault, you and I, the public, right? And we're not perfect either. So, but the first part is we, we ship some of our trash our garbage, our recycling overseas. I don't know the exact number for Canada, but I can tell you that in the United States, they ship 50% of their recyclable plastic overseas. 88% of that or 80-ish percent of that goes into countries where a lot of their waste is actually not managed. So they're taking it for recycling, but they might not be recycling it. So that's where some of ours gets lost. The other place is being waste literate. 
So we try a lot in our community outreach group, the U of T trash team to increase waste literacy. And what that means is for you and I to understand when we use products, what happens when they become waste and how do we either A, not let them become waste or B, make sure they are sustainable end of life. And so what a lot of people don't don't know is how to clean the material before you put it in the recycle bin, exactly what goes in your recycle bin and what doesn't. So if you end up with some of those plastics, A, not going in the recycle bin period because they don't know what to put in there correctly, or maybe they live in a condo building that doesn't actually have recycling. And then they'd have to drive it somewhere, which is quite expensive. And although in Toronto, we have really good waste management in other cities, you may not. And then B, if you contaminate your recycle bin, then sometimes it doesn't get recycled. So I guess I'd say it's three things, shipping our waste, availability of recycling locally, and then being waste literate. And on being waste literate, we're all busy with our own lives and we want to do the best thing we can, but it's not the easiest thing to do. How does one become more literate in waste? So if you live in the city of Toronto, which we do, so I'm going to speak to being here, there's a calendar that comes once a year. Within it, there's a spread of exactly what goes in your black, your green, and your blue bin. Hang it on your refrigerator, get to know that thing, or at least look at it before you throw things away. That's one. And if you don't get the calendar, it's online, you can print it. The second way is there's an app called the Waste Wizard, which is also a website, and you can literally type in your waste and it tells you exactly which bin it goes into. And that's actually quite fun. We have a, a school program and that we go into fifth grade classrooms and we have a waste wizard game to like teach them, right? So it's a, it's a game that kids can, kids can play, but we can play too. And then three, if you super have a ton of time, um, we have a home waste audit on our website where you can actually go in and do a four week challenge and learn how to audit your own waste and learn ways to be more sustainable in terms of what goes in each bin. And we'll do it as an outreach event in New Year's if it is your New Year's resolution to become more waste literate. Well, it does seem the perfect place for government action because it is, in this case, helping citizens do what we want to do and making it easier for us to do what we already want to do. And when it comes to the recycling systems, which you identify as one of the challenges where there may not be available recycling options. In Toronto, you identify black plastics as an example where it can be recycled in certain cities, not in the city of Toronto. How can we best go about harmonizing these various different local recycling systems where we're having this national conversation, but so much of the work happens on the ground in local municipalities? Yeah. So that's actually the third part of this discussion paper, right? There's the banning. We talked about it. There's the recycling standards. We talked about it. And the third is this extended producer responsibility, which just means that companies that make plastic help pay for the end of life. In our case, that's how that money will be used. That means they pay for the waste management. So in Ontario, it used to be that Ontario paid for 50% and plastic industry paid for 50% and municipalities brand the waste management within a city. Um, That's changing. Uh, There's a proposal online. You can, people, can read about it if they want to learn more about it. But the gist is that 100% of waste management will be paid for by industry fairly soon, and it will be harmonized across the province. So no longer will someone in Peel have something different that they can put in their bin than in Toronto. How this will roll out, what we can actually put in our bins, it's supposed to be increased what we can put in our bins, how that rolls out, we'll still figure out. And we want to make sure that what we put in our bins has a market for recycling. But the idea is that if it's harmonized, it will be more straightforward. And also, if the extended producer responsibility scheme is such that the industry pays less if they're producing products that go in the blue bin and more if they're not, then you'd also be incentivizing more sustainable materials on the market. Right. You would be, I think, fairly 
internalizing the externality into the product itself and ultimately ensuring that the producer of that product is is paying the real price. When it comes to microbeads, which interestingly, nonpartisan issue, we've seen action on microbeads from the Harper government. We've seen conversations about microbeads in the course of the Ocean Plastics Charter from the Trudeau government. And you have recently published a couple of different papers, I think, on the subject of reducing microfibers and microbeads, both through focus on appliances in some cases, but also through a focus on the manufacturers and how they can actually change some of their practices. Walk me through that research and what your advice to government would be on reducing microfibers. The microbeads are the tiny little perfectly spherical beads that um, are put into personal care products. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's what Harper Those have been banned. Yeah. Under the Harper administration, that was the, um, or maybe it happened during just after the switch, but in any case, bipartisan agreement, got rid of those. But I'm actually really glad that you started this the way you did, because I think there's a lot of thought that when we got rid of the microbeads, we got rid of microplastic. We didn't. So microplastic is just smaller plastic, less than five millimeters in size. So pencil eraser and smaller. And it comes from many different sources. So mismanaged waste is one of them. So everything we're talking about, of course, will reduce microplastic if we reduce litter. However, tire dust that comes off our cars when we drive, microfibers that come off our clothing when we wash them and go into wastewater treatment plants, plastics used in agriculture that break down over the sun and then run off from the fields, these different types of microplastics that we're not capturing when we're thinking about this mitigation. So I would say the other types of solutions that we could think about broadly as a country is yes, in order to stop microfibers, microfibers are, think about laundry lint when you clean out your dryer. If you put a trap in your washing machine to clean out the fibers that come off your clothes in the washing machine, you would be stopping those little fibers from going into the wastewater treatment plant. I mean, most of them do get taken out and sink into that the biosolids, but some of it goes out into the lake. So we see quite a lot of microfibers in the environment. So if you put filters and washing machines at the manufacturing stage, you can reduce 90% of that material that would go in the environment in the first place. The other things we've looked at for solutions to other types of microplastics are rain gardens or bioretention cells on storm drains. So if you think about when it rains, all that water comes off the road, there's tire dust and other microplastics in there. It goes into a storm drain, which you can picture, but sometimes you can put like a permeable pavement or literally a garden so that water's filtered by in a garden situation soil. That also traps the microplastics. 90% are captured in the soil and less goes into the environment. So we also need to think about some of these infrastructure to trap the microplastic in addition to what's written in this piece. And what's written in this discussion paper is fantastic. I'm not saying like, scrap it out and switch it for microplastic. It's just that we need to think about some of these mitigation strategies as well for the smaller plastics that are also so abundant. Another area that seemed underexplored in the discussion paper, but had previously been the subject of a major announcement that I had looked to as actually a a serious way forward was on federal procurement. And the federal government spends a great deal of money every year in the course of procuring all sorts of different goods. And if we took a strong zero waste approach to our procurement, we could make, I think, a measurable difference. But that was not a major component in any way of the discussion paper. Do you have any sense of why? and, And have you heard anything as it relates to federal zero waste procurement? Yeah. So I haven't heard a ton about changes in procurement, right? So for people listening, that means like 
what is purchased within country and put on the market. So there was a time when the federal government announced that within their own buildings, right, that they wouldn't procure single-use plastic so they weren't in the lunchroom and that type of thing. But procurement that is purchased so that consumers can then buy it or procurement of goods into our country, I have heard very little about. Banning certain plastics certainly is procurement in some ways. It's saying we're not going to procure these items. But it would be really neat if we also said, okay, we're going to make sure to also only procure items that can be recyclable, for example, not black plastics if we can't. That might be trying to be taken care of that in the extent of producer responsibility, but I'm not sure yet. And it's a good question. And on the overall conversation, there are some policies outside of the plastic pollution conversation where I'd point to and say, we've made commitments, but I haven't seen the needle move particularly far you mentioned fossil fuel subsidies, but I haven't seen great work, all things considered, to phase out fossil fuel subsidies at the federal level. On this, there seems to be a clear trajectory. There was an announcement of the Ocean Plastics Charter in 2018. Then there was work with provinces to establish, in broad terms, principles associated with zero waste strategy for the country. There's been ongoing consultation. And then in the course of this discussion paper, a proposal with with knock-on questions and continued conversation in some respects. When you look at where the conversation is today, which are there any noticeable pieces that you would say, but we definitely need this action or that action that hasn't been part of the conversation or hasn't come far enough? You know, there are things that are not in this discussion paper and that we haven't discussed, right, which is funding that's been given to clean up. So the CBIN projects and different types of technologies that are trapping litter, if we had the bioretention cells or traps and storm drains, I think that's a really important piece. It hasn't quite been forgotten. It wasn't in this paper, but it's been sort of funded through the zero waste strategy. There's been a lot of research that's been funded, which is great. Maybe what would be really useful useful is some sort of, I guess, I personally believe, and and this is true for microplastics, but also big plastics, that monitoring strategies are important. And if we monitor, for example, the plastic that's in our environment locally, we can understand the sources, which would inform what we need to do locally. You mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of waste is managed at the municipal level or the local level. In different cities, there are different sources of plastic going into our waterways, which means there are different strategies that you and I should take based on where we live in order to mitigate the plastic pollution, where there still hasn't been a lot of funding is to government agencies to monitor, and then also to government agencies or even scientists who could help in harmonization projects, projects for methods, to design methods for how we would monitor. Although I'm not sure the federal government needs to fund it and because it's happening in the United States and it's happening in Europe and it's also happening in the Arctic with the Arctic Monitoring Assessment Program. So I think we just need to make sure that we are involved in those processes and we are, um, and that we're using that information to inform monitoring. And then I think instead of trickling funding into the government agencies to fund academics like me, that money should stay at the government agency to fund long-term monitoring strategies. From our conversation at the Fox Theater over two years ago now, July 2018, you seem fairly optimistic about where we are and where we're headed, which gives me optimism. And it is nice to think that on a file that matters so much to, I think, many Canadians, but including here in the East End of Toronto, that there is a clear path forward and there are serious actions that have been undertaken and and that we're headed in the right direction. I I really do believe that. I've been working on this issue since about 2006 when I was in Australia. I started grad school about a year and a half later, so 2008. And for the first 
several years, I was banging my head against a wall trying to get people to say like, look, this is an issue that matters. I came to Canada in 2015. The conversation was beginning and I was seeing the writing on the wall that the research was starting to expand. The government was interested. It was, it was really starting to get attention here. 2016, we banned microbeads. That opened some of the floodgates. And what I've seen following is, is they're really listening, right? It's a comprehensive suggestion of how we're going to work on this across the entire life stage. The question is, right, it's, it seems like we've all agreed on what we need to do and we're taking actions in order to do it. And so then the question is, will we do it, right? Like we know exactly what we need to do. It's not crazy. It's not rocket science. The question is, will we use our money and our time and our knowledge efficiently to actually do this and do it quick? Because no pun intended, or maybe pun intended, like we really don't have time to waste, right? The numbers are staggering. And so we need to increase our efficiency at recycling for capture. We need to reduce the litter. We need to clean up. We need to do it all. So I am, I have hope. And I'm encouraged and I see the motivation. And the question is, in three years, will we be having this conversation of, look what we did? Obviously, it won't be perfect yet, but some measurable reduction versus we're still having this conversation. Right. Versus another discussion paper. Well, I hope this discussion paper turns into serious action in the short term. We're going to see a promise, at least of the banned items for the coming year. But I think more importantly, and if there's a takeaway from this conversation, it is that the much more important work is improving our recycling systems and working with other levels of government to do that more difficult work in some ways to ensure that we have a long-term solution to a challenge that, as you say, we can't continue to ignore. And when it comes to international efforts, to take it back to that ocean plastics charter, there are some countries that don't have waste management systems in a serious way. And for some reason, we think it's okay from a moral perspective to ship our plastics there at the moment. But do you see if, if we are able to get this right and if other countries are able to get this right or right enough, then is there that similar optimism for international efforts? Well, so what we've seen at the international level right now, so one, the shipping of waste is a problem. We need to be able to take care of our own waste locally. We can't be externalizing or sending our pollution to other countries, particularly those in need. There is a change to the Basel Convention at the United Nations, which is is making it more transparent on how waste is shipped around and what, what is allowed. So hopefully that will change. Certain countries are starting to say, we don't want your waste. We don't want your waste to be included in our numbers of mismanaged waste and pollution. So I'm, I'm hopeful that will change. There is a conversation at the United Nations right now about whether we need an international agreement and whether that looks similar to the Paris Accord, where we have a target we're going to reduce our plastic emissions below a target and we're all going to work together and conversation about a fund to help those countries that need the resources to do it. And Canada has given money. Uh, this was part of the same time around the plastic oceans charter, but it also doesn't get talked about a lot to the developing world in order to help them with the resources. So I'm hopeful at the international level too, but we absolutely like pollution doesn't observe borders. Once we let it loose, it goes everywhere. So we have to be working together within our own cities, within our own provinces, within the country, and then also globally. And there is a sense that if we aren't able to get it right here at home, then we're not going to be able to be useful leaders on the world stage and pushing for action. So all the more reason for Yes, funding. I think it was a significant sum of around $100 million to support those international efforts, but certainly we have to act with expediency to solve the problems here at home. I hope the government continues to lean on experts like you, and where you have additional feedback along the way, do do be in touch and, and let me know. No, absolutely. I'd love to, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be part of the conversation. Thanks, Chelsea. Thank you. Remember to subscribe for future episodes at uncommons.ca and please do leave a five-star review if you like what we're doing on your platform of choice. 